our scripture reading for this morning is coming to us from Mark chapter 11, verse 20 through 33. Now we read verses 20 to 24 in the message two weeks ago, uh, but it is, the Bible has a flowing theme. It flows from last week's message, or two weeks ago message, into this week's message. So I'm going to begin, I'm going to read 20 through 24, as well as the verses through to the end of the chapter uh, to make sense of this text that we have before us this morning. So Mark chapter 11, verse 20, beginning to read there. And here now, the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. This is not the, the word of the textual critics who give us, give us this text this week and then take it away next year. This is the word of the Lord, which is been with the church from the beginning. Beginning to read with verse 20. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to him, or said to them, Have faith in God, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done. He will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them, and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Then they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority do you do these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question, then answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Well, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for all counted John to ben, have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. May the Lord bless uh, his word unto us this morning. Well, this is a very interesting text. I, I've entitled it Christ in Christendom, which really is a kind of shortened title for what I wanted. The, the, the full title is Give Yourself to Christ and Christendom. Give Yourself to Christ and Christendom. Uh, we, we, we've certainly heard before that we have to give ourselves to Christ, but uh, wherever Christ is found, Christendom follows. Christ is not uh, separated from his train or from that which follows him. 
like a bride that might come into a church with a, a really fancy gown that has a train or a follow, the dress follows along after her. So where Christ goes, he, he has an effect, a mighty effect upon all society. One of the things that we face today in Christianity is a Christianity without Christendom, a Christ without a train, a Christ without effects to follow along after him. So we can speak of Christ as if he were isolated from any earthly effects. Or we'll minimize those effects to be only things of our spirituality, only things of our faith. The way we pray. Uh, the way um, we preach the gospel. These kinds of things. But we believe that wherever Christ walked, there, that he had a following. That wherever Christ taught, that his, his teaching uh, affected a whole nation. Think of Israel this way. You say, can you imagine Israel being just an Israel of an inner gospel? And not an Israel of the ten of the twelve tribes, of, of people of some consequence who followed after Moses and the world and the life view that he created. You see, that's what's being done to Christendom today. It's an Israel without a state. It's an Israel without a society. It's an Israel without any culture around it. And to say it that way, to speak that way, we see immediately of the falsity of that. When God created Israel, he created a whole nation. He didn't just create a people of uh, some inner faith, of inner belief. The very idea of Israel is the idea of, a, of, a, of an actual nation, a nation state that had 12 tribes, that had uh, cultural consequences. Even the tribes, the, ten, the 12 tribes developed some different ethos within themselves. So that finally when, when there were major tensions that fell upon them, the, the, tw the 10 tribes of the north separated from the, ten, the two tribes of the south, Judah and Benjamin. Of course, that was against the idea of a unified covenantal society that the Lord had instituted. And when Rehoboam rose up against Jeroboam, that that was not the godly idea. The ten tribes were supposed to be united with the south. But this just shows the the idea of how Israel was a real people that would have, could have real problems with each other, real disagreements, and because the the effect of Moses and the gospel of the Old Testament, remember every day, every day of the year, they would sacrifice beasts for the nation. The, 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 the Christ of the Old Testament prefigured in the sacrificial system was something they were reminded about every day. But that sacrificial system uh, was uh, was was not hardly it was hardly mentioned outside of the seventh, the, the seventh day or the Sabbath day because the people had a life to lead and they were taking the effect of the sacrifice the effect of the Old Testament gospel the effect of that out into their lives and out into their families' lives. Well, uh, the, this is the underlying theme of this whole text that we read this morning. It's, it's about the withered fig tree, but what's the story of the withered fig tree? The withered fig tree symbolizes or shows 
that Israel was this withered fig tree, that Israel should have been ready for its Messiah King. It should have been ready to provide fruit for its Messiah King, but that tree was not, and so Jesus cursed it. And then when Israel, the nation, was unwilling to accept the ministry and the reign of Jesus Christ, then Jesus uh, brought his curse down upon the nation in the same way that he did the tree. And the nation shriveled up just like the tree. Did it not? In Matthew 23, um, Jesus quotes Psalm 69. And he says, uh, May your house be desolate. Psalm 69 is a cursed psalm. It's what we call a maledictory psalm. In Latin, mal is, is a bad or evil, and di diction is, is a true, is a word, and so it's a bad word, it's a negative word, it's a curse word. Malediction. It's a curse upon Israel. And so Jesus takes this psalm, which is a cursed psalm, and he takes its most devastating curse. May your house be left to you desolate. And in Matthew 23, he utters that upon Israel. And then he, he, then he goes on to curse the leadership, the elders of Israel. He says, uh, the, the, he curses the scribes and the Pharisees, hypocrites, all through that chapter. As he curses their various uh, sins, their unwillingness, their hard-heartedness to turn back from their sins. And so, in the same way that he curses this fig tree, he curses Israel in that day. And what happened in, in uh, just a, basically 30 years later? The hand of God brought the Romans into this land in a new way, in a more destructive way. They were only there in Jesus' day, we know that. But then they came and they... they knocked the temple down. They raised the temple. The only thing that was left of it was this foundation wall that they call the West Wall today, which is really the, it, it's a part of the basement of the temple that you can see that's exposed. But they, they ruined the rest of it. And the, the worst thing for Judaism in that day was that, they, was that when they got inside the temple and they wrecked havoc on the temple, they wrecked havoc on the genealogical tables in the temple that could that would prove that you were really a son of Abraham. And they, they destroyed all the records so that after that day, no Jew could prove that he was a true Jew. Now, of course, they have traditions that went on for a couple of generations, but it didn't take long. And today, one of the great debates in Judaism is, well, are you a true Jew? And they, they, they just, especially in Russia, they discuss these, they debate these things back and forth. Because God took away, it's almost humorous, he took away their capacity to really prove that they are true genetic Jews related to Abraham. He took away their birthright. And, and Jesus warned them, don't, don't debate about your genealogies. You know, because if you don't follow me, you lose that genealogy. You lose who you are. Now, um, so Jesus, just the week before, he'd come into Jerusalem and he'd been adored in what we associate with Palm Sunday today, which is not a, not a true biblical holiday, but um, but it's celebrated today so we can understand it a little bit better. 
by, by the celebration that it gives to Christ. Well, so the, the people, the, the week before they celebrated Jesus, they did think he was the Many of them thought he was the Messiah, so they celebrated him. But then a week later, they crucified him. The same mob hysteria or logic that operated on Palm Sunday operated a week later negatively. Shows how volatile the human being can be. How we can obsess one way and then the other. It's better not to be hysterical about anything. It's better to be founded on truth and reality. And so Jesus comes and symptomatic of this volatility of Israel is this fig tree that he passes that that very well could have had fruit upon it. Some people will say, oh, it wasn't the season for fruits. But uh, fig trees will bear, some fig tree varieties will bear year-round, but not, you know, they'll have a season of abundance, but they will bear year-round. The tree should have had fruit upon it for to recognize, to acknowledge Christ as Lord of heaven and earth, but it didn't. And so Jesus cursed the fig tree, and Israel, of all, much more than the tree, Israel should have been ready to welcome Christ, but it was not. And so it turned its back on Christ in a, in a worse way even than the fig tree. And so Jesus cursed the fig tree, and the symbolism was there for Israel. Beware. And uh, he didn't make a big deal of this at this time, but he did in other parts of the gospel, like Matthew 23, 24, 25, where um, uh, he, he discusses poignantly the rejection, his rejection by Israel, and the, um, the curse that would come upon them. And so um, I just want to belabor this point that in the same way that Israel should have been open to Christ, in that same way, proportionally, analogically, in the same way that Israel should have been uh, open to Christ, so today the whole world ought to be open to Christ. It's as if God gave us a, a Dick, Jane, and Sally book to, to begin to teach us about himself with the Old Testament, Old Testament Israel. I am God. I created you. You're supposed to worship me. Uh, the, the basis of worship is the sacrifice because you're a sinner and you need help. You know, God gave that through Israel. He taught us Dick, Jane, and Sally, which was an early English primer reader. So, through Israel, God Tree, opened up the, the world to see what was up and what was down and what was true and what was false. And now that Jesus Christ has come and Jesus Christ opened up the covenant religion far beyond the parameters of Israel, this genetic Israel, everybody is supposed to recognize that Christ is not just for the Jews, but that Christ is for the, for the world. And inasmuch as Christ is in the world for the world, the world should receive him, but the world received him not, or receives him not, when it turns away from Jesus Christ. And so, the title of the sermon is Christ and Christendom, but the, the theme is give yourself to Christ and Christendom. In the same way that Israel should have given herself, that the fig tree should have given herself uh, to Israel. But this this is really strikes at us today, because what is that the solemn rite 
of the modern citizen is what? The right to be secular. This is what they believe. We have a right to be secular. We have a right to turn away from God. God would be unjust if he forced us to worship him. Well, God would not be unjust if he broke us to our knees by pure physical force. He would still not be unjust. He would be transgressing our freedom of choice. But in the overall scheme of things, that would not be a horrible transgression. Men in hell will wish that God had driven them by force to their knees. But God works through our free will, does he not? He works through our free will and with the soothing zephyrs of the Holy Spirit to change these wills that are contorted and distorted and corrupted. He changes those by the, by the winsome winds of his Spirit. And he helps us to wake up to who we really are and who he really is. And then he changes us to see Christ as he is. And so our Lord works powerfully in us and through us to bring us, to heal us. We don't get upset if, if people are, are deaf and dumb and blind and all other kinds of things. If God heals them to a place of normalcy, and that's what God does through the gospel. Um, <clears throat> and uh, this, is, this is the other side of this lesson of the, the withered fig tree. And this is what God is doing even now to Israel, to, to old Israel. He's bringing, he's bringing people that were related to old Judaism to faith today. And uh, it's, a one, it's a brilliant thing to see uh, a rabbi who is devoted to Phariseeism come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's like the Apostle Paul, who was a, a Pharisee of Pharisees, who when he, saw, when he saw through to what the sacrificial system was supposed to be about, and how it pointed to Christ, he went from kindergarten to graduate school in one moment. So what is today? <clears throat> well, verse 25 um, uh, begins to teach about forgiveness and prayer in a... Uh, well, one more thing I was going to say about the first part of that text. When Jesus says to them, have faith, faith this faith seems like this faith or the lessons of this faith is are are used today to teach a kind of charismatic gospel where the the center of the universe and the strength of the universe is not in God but in our faith. That's not the point of this lesson. These men whom Jesus was talking to were disciples who were going to be who were going to be apostles who were given the gift of the supernatural miraculous gifts both of knowledge and of the ability to be gifts. And so the apostles knew, knew the will of God, if God gave it to them at any one time, the apostles knew the will of God in a way that we don't today in terms of special occasions. We know the will of God through the scriptures, but they knew the will of God both through the scriptures and sometimes God would give them special revelations. And so God would give them uh, a revelation of something that uh, if if he did, if he revealed something to them, then they were called to believe it, or they were called to pray about it, and then they should believe it, and then they should know that that was what God's will was, and that that would be something that was um, that would come to pass. And so the, the little mistake that people make, or the big mistake, is that they read 22, 22, 23, and 24 
is if Christ is not talking to the apostles. And then he gave them what's called in, in Greek the signs of the apostles. He gave them the miraculous gifts. It was a sign that they were an apostle. And to dismiss those as if they, and he calls them the signs of the apostles. So to dismiss that as if it's the sign that everybody ought to have, it takes away the idea that they were uh, apostles and that they could do miracles in that day. And so the book of Acts details all many of these miracles that the apostles were enabled to do. So this moves us on to this idea of forgiveness and prayer. And Jesus Jesus says to them then, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now these are scary verses. The point of them is that it is it is a, a true test of our faith. Faith is an inner thing. It's hard to it's hard to determine what true faith is. It, I mean, obviously, true faith always leads us to Christ. So if we confess not Christ, that's a that's a that's a sign that we are not true people of faith. Well, another true uh, test is whether we are willing to forgive other people. This this is self-revelatory in two ways because if you are if you're unwilling to forgive other people, it teaches it's it reveals two things. One, you don't understand the doctrine of sin. You don't understand what sin really is. You don't understand what your sin really is. And then secondly, you don't really love other people. And this is, a, if we're Christian, if we're true Christians, we will understand these two things. How, how dreadfully sinful we are, and how we ought to love other people. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us how the, how the love of God and the love of our fellow men, these two great commandments, how that is the key to knowing that we're Christians. Do we really have an affection for God? The, the sign of true Christianity is not whether you understand predestination or not. Or whether you whether you understand justification or faith by faith or not, both of those are important things. But the key to Christianity is the love of God. Do we really love God? Now, of course, we can only love God when the Holy Spirit works His gospel within us. But the great sign of faith is love—love of God, love of our fellow man. And of course, if we don't understand our sin, uh, if you're not willing to forgive someone else. If you're going to hold to your righteousness as if you were, you don't, you never really sinned. You don't, you don't have any empathy or any emotional understanding of what it is to be a sinner. That means you probably didn't understand sin at all. If you're unwilling to forgive your brother and sister in Christ, if you are willing to forgive your brother and sister in Christ, it is a token or a symbol that you really understand the theology of the gospel, both in terms of its sin, in terms of Forgiveness and love of God. And so, uh, Jesus throws that, because he's, he's speaking about faith, um, uh, in the, in the uh, talking about the, what we pray for, and uh, he does a short, de uh, short detour on true faith and forgiving one another. And uh, forgiveness is a wonderful balm, a wonderful grease or, or oil that, that uh, oils the engine of the Christian church and allows us to uh, deal with each other. And then this last part that we see here uh, is a where Jesus' authority is tested by the people of his day is a real uh, another 
a real, just as forgiveness reveals something about our faith, so this last section really reveals something about the, the faith of the people of that day. Because as they came into Jerusalem, now he cleansed the temple the previous week. When they came to the temple, as he was walking to the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him, and they are ticked off. They, they want to put him to the test. And so they say to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? What they want to do, they want, they want to force Jesus into the corner where he says, I do these things by the authority of my Father who is in heaven. And then they would accuse him of blasphemy. And then they would, they would uh, crucify him, as they did a few days later. Um, but in this case, they, they try to trap him. And again, the Gospels tell the story of Jesus Christ. One of the most graphic things about Jesus is his wisdom and his superiority over men. And I've said, I've said many times, if, if Albert Einstein were alive today, one, reputedly one of the most brilliant men in all history scientifically, if Albert Einstein were alive today, and he, and he had the chance to talk to Jesus, who was here at the same time, his brilliance would amount to nothing in his conversation with Jesus. In a few moments, he would realize how superior Christ was, how Christ knew more about physics than he did. Our Lord Jesus was, was man, he was also God, but he was also the the uh, the man of the, the man of men, and he uh, he in and of himself. Uh, remember, everything that was created was created through him eternally. The, the, Jesus never gave us a soliloquy on physics, but I have no doubt that he could have. He could talk about anything. That was one of the ways that he talked. Every man that he talked to, he he just he. He knew, he knew how to talk to that person. So here, he's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. So they come with this trick, trick question. Where are they going to trap him? He just he says, okay, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. That's a very even-tempered thing, right? And so he says, by whose, uh, 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 by, uh, answer me this, he says, tell you uh, the baptism of John, John the Baptist. Was it from heaven or was it from men? That's <laughs> a sounding question. But he puts them on the horns of the dilemma right away. Because why? Because number one, even though he, even though John the Baptist was recognized as a great prophet, he was recognized thusly by Jesus himself. Even though John was recognized as a great prophet, guess what? He irritated the Pharisees. The Sadducees and the scribes and the elders in the same way that Jesus irritated them. Why? Because he came speaking the true religion. And they were dedicated to their humanistic religion that they made in that day. And so uh, they were unwilling to say that, Jesus, that John's baptism was from heaven. Because Jesus, uh, they said themselves here, they said, and how do, how do we know that they said this themselves? Because there were Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes who were converted, who became Christians. And then they said, remember that day when Jesus said this in the temple, when he put this question to them? Well, they said this because they believe that. You know? And so all of these things came out sooner or later. And they were, they were, uh, they were included by the gospel writers in their story about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So they were afraid to say that Jesus came from God because they themselves kept a distance from John the Baptist. They would not follow John's teaching because John's teaching led to Christ, and they didn't want Christ. On the other hand, they were afraid to say that, John, that John's teaching came from them, uh, I mean, from God, uh, I mean, from God, from men, uh, because um, they feared the people, it says, uh, who, who the people all counted John to have been a prophet. And so if, uh, if they said if he, his authority came from men, the people believed, no, that authority came from God. Now this shows that this, this reveals so much about the scribes and the Pharisees. Number one, even though a lot is not made of this in the gospel, the gospel is about, about where, what their beliefs were, this shows that they did not accept John the Baptist. It was common knowledge they did not accept John the Baptist, but the people did. The people, the people believed that John was a true prophet, and, uh, and they did. And it showed, but then it showed secondly, that their basic fear or their basic motivation of life came not from God, but from men. They were afraid of men before they were afraid of God. They were basically humanistic. Even though their traditions had all this to do with uh, uh, Old Testament Judaism, so-called, they were really humanists at heart. They were afraid of men. Men's opinions were most important to them. If you ask this about Jesus, who did Jesus, what, who did Jesus care most about? What, what opinion was he most concerned about? The opinion of God or the opinion of men? There's no question about it. Jesus was more, much more afraid of the opinion of his father, so much so that he did not deviate from the father's will one jot or one tittle. But the Pharisees were of a different sort. Brothers and sisters, religion can be very humanistic, even though it, ha it ha wears the mantle of religion. It can be exceedingly humanistic. It can be exceedingly anti-God, even though they use the word God. Liberalism in America, every Sunday, every pulpit, they talk about God. And yet they hate the idea of God in the same way that the scribes and the Pharisees do. Some evangelicals who come to church every week, some pastors, Joel Osteen, people like that, they, they wear the mantle of Christianity, and yet they have not the love of God in them. They're more afraid of men. They've collected men. They love the adulation of men. Why are they not so concerned about the adulation of God? At John's baptism, Jesus came forward and John, John said, the heavens opened. And the God, and the God from heaven declared from the Holy Spirit, "This is my beloved Son, upon whom I am well pleased, or with whom I am well pleased." That ought to be our ultimate concern. But the men of Jesus' day were concerned more about what men thought of them, about men's opinions. Brothers and sisters, I preach a lot about the Lord, but I, I'm, I'm, it's, a, it's a sad thing to tell you or to admit that I'm much too concerned about. The opinion of men. You may think that I'm just the most brazen, you know, pro-biblical person, but my contamination is more with this love of men and what men would say. And it breaks my heart to say that. I do have a love for God, though, and uh, that gets me in enough trouble <laughs> as it is today. But 
I wish, my heart, I wish I was more enthusiastic for God, not less. More fearful of his word, not less. And so I, I pray that for you. Uh, we need to give ourselves to God and to this movement that follows along in the train of our Lord Jesus Christ, Christendom. We, we see a culture today which is absolutely, absolutely enraged by the things of the Lord. There's a, I just heard about a piece that was written, I think it was in the New York Times, where a, a, a reporter, I think she was from, I think she lived in Vermont. She's a columnist, lived in Vermont. She said she wrote a whole column just yesterday, I think it was, or Friday, a whole column about how these neighbors of hers who were Trumpites had come and plowed her driveway. And she said, she said, you know, it was it was nice that they plowed the driveway for me, but she said, I don't want them to think that they're that they are off the hook just because they've been nice to me. She just revealed the most bitter spirit. Unwilling to see any kindness in her fellow citizens because there was a political difference between them. She was corrupt. Her heart is corrupt. Her heart needs salvation. The salvation of Christ. She 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 would fail all of these tests. She failed the test of forgiveness. She failed the test of prayer. She failed the test of John the Baptist because she had no pure spirit within her. And our culture today is infected, infected with this stuff. An incapacity to love one another for our own selfish reasons. Let us not be so in Christ. Let us be tied to Christ, but let us have a magnanimity, magnanimous nature toward others also. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that the gospel of Christ might really change us and make us uh, better people. We pray that we would not fail these tests that the people of Jesus day failed, whether in the temple or outside, like the fig tree. We pray that we would, if we are tested, O oh Lord, we pray that there would only be gold revealed within us, the gold of the gospel, of the love of God and of Jesus Christ. We pray that that love might spread abroad today into this world of us. We know that we cannot love each other or love people into the kingdom without the cross. They must have the cross of Christ. They must have Jesus. They must have his righteousness. They must have his forgiveness. But we pray that in this world where there are so many hatreds, that we can uh, be lovers of others, even when we disagree with them violently. Because we have been forgiven ourselves. We were exactly like them. But God first loved us when he taught us how to love in a secondary sort of way. We pray that you bless us, O oh Lord, with this insight and this power and this magnetism. In thy name we pray. Amen.